0: This podcast is marketing material for a South Africa investment professional only. Hello and welcome to this month's Global Markets Perspective, a podcast from Schroeder, specifically designed for South African investors to navigate global markets. My name is Ibert van Jeden. I'm the head of our intermediary business here and I'm your host for today. As investors consider their positioning for 2021, I am delighted to be joined by Azad Sangana, a senior economist at Schroders and a regular guest of this podcast in the past and, until fairly recently, also a regular guest of ours in South Africa. Azad, it's great to have you back, even virtually for now.
1: Thank you, it's good to be back.
0: January has been an interesting month for global markets. We saw divergent performance for shares with developed market equities ending the month lower while emerging market equities posted positive returns along with uh, volatility from abnormal and rather targeted trading alongside concerns over the pace of vaccine rollout. Government bonds bond yields generally rose, meaning prices fell. And in the US, the Democrats secured control of Congress to raise expectations of more fiscal stimulus and potentially more liquidity in the market. Commodities gained with energy, the best performing index component as Saudi Arabia, unexpectedly announced a unilateral cut in output. For many investors looking towards 2021, It's especially challenging given the truly extraordinary year that we just witnessed. Who could think that an event with an unbelievably severe global impact like COVID-19 only temporarily halted flows into risk assets? Azad, for the year ahead, how do you think that sets the scene for investors now?
1: Well, as, as you mentioned, uh, 2020 was certainly a, a very challenging year, and you can describe it as a, as a year of two halves. Certainly, the, the first half was dominated by the fears around the lockdowns or the potential impact on companies. Um, and since then, hope has returned thanks to the rollout uh, of vaccines and uh, many markets, uh, many asset classes have recovered um quite nicely. So, it leaves us in a situation where we have a number of markets looking pretty expensive, yet at the same time we have huge amounts of both fiscal and monetary policy stimulus uh, being pumped into economies and technically financial markets as well, making life very difficult um, for investing in 2021. Um, Politically, things have also uh, changed uh, in the U.S. as, as you rightly uh, mentioned, and that means we're we're reassessing uh, the the likelihood of um, future concerns around the trade relationships with other regions, especially China. Also, uh, com- commitments to the climate change targets being reaffirmed and then finally again fiscal stimulus uh, now appears to be larger than would have been expected uh, given that the democrats uh, in the us now have full control over the political system
0: that's certainly true but um but the rising tide of liquidity that we've seen last year does not lift all ships global equities ended the year with a positive total return, sure, and they, but there were huge differences between performance of certain sectors and regions. US equities were up by 21%, are facing the rest of the world for the third consecutive year. And to some degree, I think, understandably, many investors have been reluctant to diversify their portfolios globally. But this isn't just a recent phenomenon, though. I mean, For the past decade, U.S. stocks have beaten non-U.S. stocks, or basically everything else, by an average of just over 8% a year. And then in November, as the rollout of COVID-19 vaccine supports more optimism for a global economic recovery, we've seen non-U.S. equities outperform by just over 5%. Do you think we've reached a turning point in this cycle?
1: Well, one of the main reasons why U.S. equities have performed so well over the last year is the the type of companies within the index. Um, many of the companies we would refer to as being defensive. Um, in addition, there's they have a quite a large uh, share dedicated towards technology companies. And as, as we've seen, as, as we're all working remotely, um, these tech companies have performed very well, as um, many other areas of the economy have been uh, restricted. So, you can see, for example, the Nasdaq composite last year was up uh, just shy of forty-five percent in in dollar terms, um, in um, including the the dividend uh, paid. And because um, the U.S. companies have such a large concentration of these defensive and technology. Uh, stocks, you can begin to understand why it, it's done so well last year. But going into this year, you, as things start to reopen again, investors will be looking for better opportunities for a recovery in value stocks in in other sectors. And as a result, they, they I think rightly, are, are looking elsewhere beyond the US again. So emerging markets are starting to recover. Europe is also starting to recover along with um, Japan not saying that investors should totally uh, come out of U.S. equities. I think there's still quite an important role that they play in a diversified portfolio. But you can understand why they uh, may have seen their, their, or their, their best days may now be behind them.
0: And I so how do you see that play out for emerging markets? So, I mean, not all emerging markets are equal.
1: Within emerging markets, the there will be um, quite a bit of emphasis on how these countries are dealing with the coronavirus situation, whether vaccinations are taking place, um, and how much government su- support there is for. The local economy and for households. So uh, a good example is India who has been, who has historically always had a um, an important part to play in global pharmaceutical supplies. They're obviously ahead of the game and unable to roll out the vaccine um, fairly quickly and probably faster than most other emerging markets. Um, so they are well placed to benefit. Um, China just due to its sheer size is struggling to roll out the vaccine, even though they vaccinated more individuals than any other country in the world. But again, because of the size of the population, uh, it's difficult. Um, And then um, really, as I said, it comes down to the amount of support being offered and whether a country can go uh, back to work. Um, Looking ahead as well, we're starting to see US Treasury yields picking up in, in anticipation of a global recovery. So one of the questions that is coming up from investors is, are we going to see yet another taper tantrum in in emerging markets? Um, The idea that uh, as the US raises interest rates Global liquidity is reduced and, and countries that have borrowed excessively in foreign currency but especially in the US dollar could be badly hit um, as a result South Africa of course is is no stranger to this and uh, they were quite badly impacted a few years ago uh, with the rand selling off so it, it's it's a concern that will return and I think it, it's a good reason why investors especially South African investors should be thinking about um, diversifying away from local assets
0: that's certainly very insightful thank you so changing track for a moment government bonds also had an unprecedented year in 2020 generating along with equities positive returns so if you're an investor looking to build a balanced portfolio at this point if not bonds what in your mind then would be the best way to hedge or offset the risk from equity holdings in such
1: a portfolio? Yeah, I mean, bonds have become very challenging as an asset class. Um, Yields are now uh, very low uh, and are are still, although they've picked up a little bit in in recent weeks, they are still close to the record lows that we saw uh, during last year, Um, which means that there is very limited upside in terms of the price um, that you can achieve on holding a bond. So investors have um, decided to look elsewhere, um, and a key uh, asset class uh, for defensive investing it has been the U.S. dollar, the Japanese yen, uh, the Swiss franc, uh, as well. Um, these have played important parts in in portfolios in terms of trying to diversify um, risk gold has also uh, performed reasonably well, partly on the back of inflation fears um, coming back. But this is another asset class that um, seems to do reasonably well when inflation appears to be picking up, but also there are concerns around um, growth. But yes, um, government bonds are going to be Um, are going to have very limited upside uh, now going forward, um, unless, of course, yields return to higher levels, which I think is unlikely given the amount of support that central banks are offering.
0: So something we watch very closely in South Africa. Um, Post-COVID, the consensus view seems to be that the US dollar stays weak or potentially weakens further. Would you share this view?
1: Yes, I would. I think... Um, the dollar did very well last year. Again, as it acted as a safe haven uh, asset, um, a lot of money was was parked uh, in the dollar just for safekeeping while um, equity markets were selling off at the time. But you can see now that um, equities are recovering, investors are are putting their money back to work, and they're having to obviously sell their holdings of the dollar in order to be able to buy those riskier asset classes. So we do think that uh, trade-weighted US dollar can continue to sell off in in the next uh, year or or two, um, not only against uh, emerging market currencies, but actually against other developed market currencies. So if you are concerned about... Uh, holding too much in terms of emerging market currencies, then you might decide to favour uh, the euro or even the British pound, which has uh, performed very well uh, recently.
0: So if we're positive on an economic recovery, that potentially brings an increase in inflation numbers, which seems to be a much deba- debated point on on our side recently. It feels though so as if once again... COVID-19 and our path to recovery from the pandemic is the central consideration to this point. I would be interested to hear your view on that.
1: Yeah, there's a couple of reasons why we expect inflation to be picking up. I mean, first of all, we're approaching the anniversary of the big fall in oil prices that we saw Uh, last year. So that has been a drag on -on year-on-year inflation now um, for almost a year or so. As we pass this um, anniversary, um, the fall in oil prices will fall out of the the base effect as as we refer to it. And as a result, um, you will start to see year-on-year inflation picking up uh, for the next uh, 6 to 12 months or so. But in addition, Yes, we do have demand picking up. You can see that commodity prices are recovering uh, pretty much across the world um, right now. At the same time, there are still supply restrictions. Not everybody is able to go back to work. Shipping is also uh, being... Uh, restricted because of a lack of um, flow in both directions. It means that there's been an imbalance in the flow of shipping, resulting in a shortage of container ships, for example. Um, These factors all work to push up inflation um, in in the near term. Um, But we think this is more of a near-term problem rather than a long-term issue. At the end of the day, um, many companies are still struggling. They're unlikely to be uh, expanding uh, their capacity anytime soon. So uh, business investment is likely to carry on being weak. And unemployment has been rising now for several months. So um, it's, it's not as if households have the ability to request um, higher wages. Um, so it's, it's still a pretty deflationary um, environment. Uh, underlying the the current situation, but in the near term, yes, we will expect to see some higher inflation.
0: That's interesting, thank you Azan. Speaking of supply chains, I have to ask you about Brexit. I so vividly remember throughout most of 2019, our colleague Gavin Ralston described South Africa as a haven of political stability in comparison to the UK. Well, since then, I think it's safe to say we've made a fair contribution supporting the theory of mean reversion, Um, but bring us up to speed. It seems to be one of the highlights potentially of 2020. Uh, Brexit is done, or are there longer term implications that still need to play out that you think are material considerations?
1: I think for most investors, um, the Brexit saga is is over. And and what I mean by this is that the big risks around will we have a deal, won't we have a deal, what will happen to trade, that's largely now been resolved. Um, the details have been spelled out. Now, not everybody is happy with the deal, and there are certainly still frictions around trade and, and um, problems with shipments of, of goods. Um, but the big questions and the big risks for investors have now been resolved. And as a, as a result, you are seeing uh, the pound starting to recover. Uh, you're also seeing a little bit of a better performance from uh, the FTSE, which, which was one of the worst performing uh, markets uh, last year, I should uh, mention. So there is certainly room for uh, a bit of a rebound um, there. Um, now, longer term, there are still questions around what happens with Scotland you may remember that um, Scotland uh, strongly voted in favour of remaining within the European Union, and because of the overall result and, and the consequences of the, the referendum, um, Scottish independence has returned as a, as a topic uh, once again. Interestingly, though, um, depending on whether we ever get a, a, a another vote or another referendum on Scottish independence and whether Scotland actually votes to leave, Um, Scottish independence may actually end up being good news for the pound, believe it or not. And that's because Scotland runs a very large uh, fiscal deficit internally within uh, the United Kingdom. Um, So the United Kingdom pays for around 8% of Scottish GDP just in order to keep things um, going. Um, it's a little bit like if Germany ever left uh, the eurozone, you'd expect the new currency, the, the, the revitalised German mark, to actually appreciate versus the euro if it was ever to happen. Um, so near term, we may still see a, a few wobbles for sterling if, if the issue of the referendum comes up. But actually, in the long term, I think it, it could be good for sterling if Scotland was to leave. That
0: is very interesting. Uh, just as I, on that point. Services and financial services in particular. It's my understanding that um, services are still excluded from this agreement. And what do you think is the implication of that?
1: So, the Brexit trade agreement um, included pretty much all goods, which was actually slightly better than we had anticipated. There are no tariffs um, and there are no quotas on any trade in goods, but there are regulatory and customs. Uh, checks imposed. So there there is still an additional friction that has been added to trading goods. Unfortunately, um, services have been pretty much totally excluded from uh, the agreement, which means that if a company resides in the UK and wants to export services to the European Union, it must now set up uh, and domicile itself uh, in the European Union. Um, for financial services, it means that some activities have simply had to move locations. Um, we've seen some clearing houses shift, uh, a number of the investment banks have moved staff and jobs uh, in order to cope with mergers and acquisitions, uh, initial public offerings as well, that's all been shifted. For asset managers like ourselves though, it's less of an issue. Um, the rules have been in place for quite some time that allow third parties to trade uh, within the EU and sell their funds. To um, EU investors, but they still had to have some kind of presence there. Um, and so, uh, if like us, they have uh, a do- if they have some kind of subsidiary in the EU, it's not really um, an issue. Um, but yes, it is disappointing because the UK has got a trade surplus with the EU um, in services, but a trade deficit in goods. Um, so it's interesting that the UK government has settled for a trade deal on goods, but not a trade deal on services.
0: I would have loved to be part of that negotiation conversation because I can't imagine that um, it was an easy one. I think with Europe for a moment, in our latest global markets perspective, which if our audience is not familiar with that, a shortest publication providing an economic and asset allocation outlook for various asset classes and uh, regions across the globe in which we grade our expectation of each of these with one of four ratings ranging from maximum negative to maximum positive. Looking at regional equities at the end of 2020 Europe x UK received a rosy maximum positive rate. Is this still
1: your outlook? Yes, I think part of the um, story there is mm-hmm. the underperformance that we saw last year. So we we believe that the cyclical parts of the global equity market will start to rebound this year as the economies open up. Now unfortunately um, Europe has had to tighten its restrictions in terms of lockdowns um, earlier this year. And we now have uh, lockdowns carrying on in most countries until around uh, mid-February to early March. So there's been a little bit of a setback for uh, Europe X uk um, but it's still the case that um, investors are looking for a cyclical rebound in these economies and in these equity markets um, over the rest of um, this year. Um, The UK market is interesting because obviously this is a more defensive market compared to the Eurostox or the wider EU um, uh, markets. But um, because the vaccine rollout has been much faster in the UK than the rest of Europe, there's also a a bit of support for uh, the FTSE uh, there as well.
0: Bitcoin is the new gold. Well, that was the headline from a prominent financial publication recently. And this prior to Tesla's investment of around one and a half billion dollars, driving the price to a near record high. Well, at least at the time of us having this conversation. Bitcoin and gold are both scarce, uh, exchangeable and divisible. Are there truth to this or do you merely think the Bitcoin bubble is back?
1: I think I'm on record as saying that uh, the Bitcoin bubble is back and have always been skeptical of asset classes that need um, a belief in order to invest in. Um, I think I've always been keen on investing in asset classes that have a use, that have a, uh, a primary objective that's aligned to generate some form of growth or some form of uh, income uh, and as a result Um, because Bitcoin doesn't really satisfy these objectives. I I struggle to even call it an asset class uh, often. But I have to say that uh, it has done uh, very well, and there are uh, major institutions considering and adding Bitcoins to their portfolios. Recently, um, Tesla was obviously a major multinational that that has waded in and, and added it to its balance sheet. One thing that doesn't help is um, negative interest rates around the world, negative real interest rates, I should say, uh, as well. Um, These often create bubbles in financial markets because uh, investors are forced to uh, push out uh, the uh, amount of risk that they are willing to take in order to get some kind of return but specifically on Bitcoin. The argument is that it is a scarce resource, um, that it is tradable, um, and it's it's, the idea is that it can be used as a form of currency. In reality, of course, there is no limit to the number of Bitcoin uh, or cryptocurrencies that are on offer. I think, I believe there are over 800 different cryptocurrencies in circulation uh, at this moment in time. It's just, though, uh, happens that Bitcoin is the most popular of those um, f- for the moment. Um, but inherently, when you look at the, the processing power of the Bitcoin system, with it only being able to process about uh, 1,500 transactions per second, it is nowhere near powerful enough to ever replace the clearing system of Visa or MasterCard that, that process hundreds of thousands of transactions per second uh, around the world. So in reality, it's not a scalable um, solution for the global financial system and not, nor will it ever be given its um, construct. Um, so the scarcity argument is, is a bit of an illusion. Um, its usability is, is a bit of a, a problem and in in my view, I think most investors should stick to your traditional asset classes where we can explain and understand why an asset class is going up, why an asset class is going down, how it performs during different phases of the cycle. None of this we can do uh, with Bitcoin.
0: That is some very rational thinking and very interesting insights, right there. I think we're out of time. Thank you very much for joining me today. As always, valuable considerations, especially at this time with investors looking to optimize their portfolios for the year ahead. And thank you very, very much to you, our audience, for sharing your attention with us today. Remember, you can access this and all previous podcasts on our website archive, along with additional insights from thought leaders at Schroders. Until next month. Well and the value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance and may not be repeated. Schroeder's Investment Management Limited is an authorized financial services provider. FSP number 48998 registration number 01893220 incorporated in england and wales the information is not an offer solicitation or recommendation any funds services or products mentioned might not be appropriate for all listeners please speak to a financial advisor if you are unsure as to the suitability of any investment